0: Let's do this.
1: I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's
0: most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it.
1: Their highs and lows.
0: Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories
1: with you. This is Unfinished Biz.
0: I recall
2: in the first month when the whole company thought that we had cash. Uh, I thought we had cash, and I found out that we didn't have cash. That day I found that out was not 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 a good day.
1: On this episode of Unfinished Biz, Good Eggs CEO Bentley Hall lays it all out there. For the last five years, he's led the Good Eggs team, who deliver fresh groceries and meal kits throughout the Bay Area, and things are going very well. But it didn't exactly start out that way for Bentley.
2: I think we're a little under the ten. And I think
0: I had to write a personal check to cover the difference, but it was one of those things where, like, well, I'm in it now. <laughs> Find out which tough changes Bentley had to make to put Good Eggs back on track to success. How his history working in startups helped guide his decision making, and where Good Eggs hopes to expand next. Unfinished biz starts now. Rob, I'm really excited about this one. Uh, we have Bentley coming on the show known him for over a decade, and a similar background to a number of our other guests that we've had on Unfinished Biz in Cheryl O'Laughlin as well as Neil Grimmer, both starting up at in larger organizations, part of a transformational time at Cliff Bar, and then to get together, part of a founding team at Plum Organics, where all three of them, with their phenomenal backgrounds, rolling up their sleeves really across a variety of different roles and, you know, that Bentley had there and ultimately transitioned to his next challenge.
1: You know, and specifically to Good Eggs, I mean, it's a business that grew up in our backyard. Um, I think when we originally heard about it, it was, you know, a real high-flying business, different business model, um, you know, was expanding incredibly quickly outside of the Bay Area as well. And then honestly, it had this sort of well-publicized retrenching period, right? Where I think the narrative was that they had actually gone too big, too quickly. They didn't have their business model. And so honestly, I think this was a, a really interesting opportunity to chat with Bentley to learn a little bit more about his role in, the, in his own journey, as well as the journey of Good Eggs.
2: The, the Hall brothers, we had, a, we had a landscaping business as young kids just north of Boston, I think we um, we shoveled snow in the winters and we mowed lawns in the summers and we raked leaves in the fall and we would knock on doors of our neighbors. I think we had a good a good uh, neighborhood share
0: by the time we we went to college. So you decided to go to college after that. You didn't decide to continue to 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 go to worldwide domination with your landscape business.
2: No, it's funny. Waking up at, at 5 a.m. to shovel snow in the middle of the winter in the Northeast does, does give you a desire to find a different, maybe, maybe simpler path.
0: <laughs> did that experience help inspire, I guess, the next genre of entrepreneurship for you? And, and how, did that, you know, how did that take form?
2: Yeah, I think for me, actually, all kidding aside, I mean, doing that as, as a young kid always made me have a great desire to run a business of our own um, and actually get comfortable with different pieces of it. And probably more importantly than that, it it, it gave you a work ethic um, that applies to to this day. And when I think about even going to college at that stage, I studied accounting, which I don't talk about often. Um, But I did it because I thought it was the architecture of business. And I knew that I would always want to run a business. um, And I needed to understand how those pieces work together. And my first job out of school was uh, Johnson & Johnson. And they have a financial leadership program that's kind of like GE. And it was a great program, but when you talk about like entrepreneurial journey, two years into that program, you know, you have those moments where you you think about what matters most and what you're gonna do next. And I I had one of those moments probably two years after college. And despite my love of J and J, I knew that one, I wanted to stay in California and two, I really wanted to work at a company that was smaller so I could uh, a greater breadth of understanding with a really incredible team yep and I joined Cliff back then I, th- I think it was under 100 million in revenue and it was less than hundred people and you know back back then and to this day it was one of the best places to work in the US and had this incredible culture and I learned a ton there and then I jumped so I almost like increasingly went to smaller and smaller companies And so you know you know Cheryl who was CEO of Cliff at the time and and Neil from Habit I think uh, Neil was on the podcast recently too.
0: Both of them were. So it it mm-hmm. it, it all kind of comes back to this cliff starting point, you know that that in both of their stories of, you know, between Cheryl and Neil, and then heading. I'm sure the next thing we're talking about is Plum.
2: Yeah, exactly. And you've heard that story, but I, I mean, I I joined Cheryl when they when Cheryl and Neil and one of their person were working in the basement of Cheryl's house. In the, in the East Bay. And so that was, a, that was a big risk. But the consistency of all of these things, like who's an incredible team that I can learn from? And where is this category transformation moment right? And Cliff Bar built a category, right? Plum built a category. Good Eggs was building a category um, a little ahead of its time. And, and all of those things, I don't think I'm so good that category timing does not matter. I think category timing probably has a lot more to do with success
0: than my own talent or lack of talent. So what did you learn in those early days of joining Cheryl and Neil at Plum? You know, again, you you went smaller and smaller, but that that jump down from Cliff to the beginnings of Plum, that's a significant one.
2: Yeah, I think I mean, I think people think about risk all the time. Uh, and I think people thought that every one of those jumps was risky to me. But actually, it wasn't risky if you think about what really matters to, to you individually, or at least it didn't for me. And for me, like my, the biggest driver is a love of lifelong learning. And I, I want to learn like that is what, that is what engages me. That's what makes me excited. And I want to learn alongside a team of people who I can learn new things from and who I really respect. Uh, and so you have to chase these challenging situations or these earlier stage companies, in my opinion, to get that learning. And these early stages of high growth businesses that are disrupting these big stake stagnant industries that's, that's the best place to learn. And so I was lucky enough to be there. And while there was early days at Plum, I was running supply chain, I was running finance. Then I ran innovation for a time period. Then I ran
0: international expansion.
2: There's no better place to learn than to be at a
0: company at that stage. I still That was the first time you and I met was, uh, I think it was like 2010. Yeah, and a long time I think ago. It, I think it was you. You and Cheryl came by. And it was before you all had, Raise capital with Catterton uh, Plum. So time sure, sure flies by.
1: It sure does. It As sure you does. were making some of these career choices, it sounds like a lot of it was a pursuit on kind of around working with great people, a pursuit of, of learning. Were there sort of mentors or people that you were also talking to to, to kind of help you connect the dots? Uh, as you were kind of shaping your own career at that time.
2: I mean, I've, I've had I have a huge host of people who are, I would call mentors who I've learned from. But I think, I think on those critical moments where I decided to jump, it actually was not mentor-driven. It was driven by what I defined success success for myself. And again, that was I wanted something with a challenge. I wanted something mm-hmm. with incredible learning. I wanted something with a great team. And I never really cared about title or. Making a resume look good. I wanted to do all those things to a great teams so I could make an impact. And so the way I was evaluating those opportunities is pretty different than I think others are at that stage in their career.
0: Yep. And how long was your your overall tenure at at Plum? And and maybe walk through kind of what the transformation of the business looked like from the time you joined, which was very early, to the time you decided to leave.
2: I mean, I was at Plum for I don't know if it was seven or eight years. So really early days through sale to Campbell, Campbell's, and then I think I gave them six or nine month notice, and I was living in the UK at the time before I before I left. And so that that journey, I mean, it, it's such an uh, incredible journey. And I would don't tell anybody this, but I would do that for free again to work alongside. <laughs> uh, I I really would. I mean, it was just one of those once in a lifetime moments. And I think about how Cheryl and Neil are incredible. But actually, I think there's four or five.
0: CEOs who have come out of that team. So when you decided to leave Plum, what was the decision-making process on that and the driver?
2: It comes back to these things that mattered to me. Um, And I I love that journey. I love that team. I love building that alongside a great team. I guess Campbell's had sold their European business for a couple hundred million dollars three months before they bought Plum. I I was in the UK running a UK business for Plum with the expectation that I would expand that into Europe and Asia. And as soon as I saw both the Campbell deal, and then I saw that they just sold their European business, like they, they, they didn't, they don't, and they shouldn't have cared about a small UK business at the time. And then I had a, we have two boys who are six and nine now, but our son was three at the time. And my wife was, I think four months pregnant when that deal went through. And so there was another, another personal drive to get home eventually and return to sunshine
0: and friends that I missed. Makes sense. And you know, can't blame you for wanting to come back to California. And then what did you decide to do next?
2: I was actually looking at, I was invested in a, a few small companies. Um, I invested in Revive at the time. I was the, the first check writer in that deal. Um, and similar, like kombucha was a category that I believed had the potential to go mainstream. And I was thinking about starting my next business when I, I actually was introduced to Good Eggs through one of their suppliers. And back in the day, I was looking at good eggs to try to identify emerging young brands. And I wanted to get data on who's the best velocity that you are selling. Um, How can I use that to target great investments? Um, And one thing led to another. And I was pretty, pretty amazed with what they had built. And the fact that they had just scaled back from four markets to one um, was way less relevant to me. than the fact that the category was ripe for change in that moment. And remember i just come from the uk where online grocery share was something like 30 percent in the us and in california it was still three to four percent so it was pretty evident to me that food was going online and food was going towards good food and when i thought through things with that lens it didn't matter if the business was perfect it just mattered that the timing was great and that i cared deeply about what they were building and that i thought that what they needed was slightly aligned with what I was capable of doing. And when that comes along, it's a once in a lifetime chance. You don't, you jump.
0: How did it transition to that conversation from trying to identify brands to becoming their, the company's CEO?
2: I knew some of their investors lightly. I also, they wouldn't sell the data to me, but they, would, <laughs> they, they told me if I could help them with a project for a week and a half, they would give me the data. And so uh, I, I helped for a week and a half on a project. And then by the end of that, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't keep my mind off the potential that existed there.
0: Walk us through some of the, the challenges of the business at the time where they had scaled back. Help paint a picture for the audience of Good Eggs, Good Eggs at that time.
2: I mean, Good Eggs, good eggs had done many, many incredible things. They, they started this 10 years ago. So more than a decade ago, yep. they were a really early pioneer in online grocery. And they, they knew that technology would change food. And they knew that this was a gigantic you know trillion dollar plus market for them to chase after. And the two, the two founders, the two primary founders were software engineers. And so they started off actually trying to connect these small independent CPG brands and, and local producers directly with customers. And it was the software behind that. And that, that got some pretty good traction. But quickly, and maybe a little begrudgingly, they realized that not every supplier wants to drop off to a couple hundred homes in the Bay Area. That's not their business. So they realized, oh, we kind of need to open a warehouse and we need to facilitate more of this with our software. And uh, they raised a ton of capital. They expanded to four different markets in New York, uh, NOLA, LA. And then they also were in the Bay Area, and that was meant to prove that the model worked in multiple different markets. And then they just grew, and it's a classic, classic Silicon Valley story in many ways, right? It was really, really fast growth with technology at the core, and that was what drove um, all of their behavior and all of their choices up to that point. And they built this; am- they had built this amazing purpose and an amazing brand, which I think all of us know that's that's not easy to do and they had built incredible technology to make this possible. Uh, they also had not figured out the business, both the supply chain of it, the unit economics of it, how to do that at scale. And they scaled back from those four markets to one market, just by area. I think it was the summer of 2015 and I joined in December of
0: 2015. And what were some of the, the primary challenges with the unit economics? You know, I think, cause I think you're, you're hitting a, a key point. Like what, Like what was the crux of it?
2: Oh, I mean, the, the crux was groceries are a complex supply chain business and it's hard to do that efficiently at low scale and, and, or at high scale. And so they, they actually, we thought that our unit economics, when I joined were a couple bucks negative per order. And when I went in and dug a little deeper, it was negative $13 an order. So the faster they grew, the more money they lost. And it was it was a number of things. It was everything from the gross margin level, how do you how do you price things properly, how do you manage inventory, where is yield and lost, to how do you pick those orders and how do you do that efficiently, to last mile. So there was no there was no area that didn't have opportunity for improvements. I think the core macro idea though is that they had scaled before, um, they were ready to scale, and they hadn't figured out that foundational piece yet.
0: And when you mentioned, when you described those unit economics of 13 bucks an order, is that the description of after already shrinking from four markets to one, or was it even more challenging when it was four markets? Uh, I don't know, because when I when I got there, I just had one market to manage. Got I it. i a good picture for
2: what actual, actual costs were. I don't know what prior markets were.
1: So what were some of the bigger differences? Um, because this would be the first time when you got into a business that wasn't I think, wasn't necessarily growing, right? It had contracted. And so from a culture perspective, what did you have to do differently um, in order to actually make this be successful?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, in the UK, it was a turnaround, the business I ran for, for Plum and in a different culture. So I learned it a little bit, but it was still a subsidiary of a company that was growing quickly. I think the biggest thing I learned in the first 30 days, I just listened. So I, I, I talked to everybody in the company. I called customers and spent time with customers. I talked to producers. I, I said very little in the first 30 days because I was in deep learning mode. And I have plenty of opinions, but that was not the time for them. And I just had to, I had to listen and then distill. And in that process, we distilled on what mattered most and what we could focus on that was actionable in the next six, 12 months. And then culturally, um, we had to kind of change three things. One was be clear that we were a food company that was enabled by technology, not a technology company enabled by food. And customers used us for the food, not the other way around. And that came with a different set of expectations on how we would grow and how we would build something of really enduring value. And that wasn't for everybody. And then I think the biggest cultural thing besides that was realizing and and Sharing with people that we wanted to build a team that it wasn't—it was Good Eggs was greater than all of us, and that four people who were left there that were at Good Eggs for personal reasons as opposed to Good Eggs reasons and driven by self versus the collective whole—they actually weren't going to make it. And a number of changes early in that journey with the team, I think, reinforced that message pretty clearly. Mm-hmm. And so those who were left were were clear that we were a food company and that we were going to do this together.
0: And that we were, we had a, a good journey to go. But even before you got a chance to to make some of those, A, to listen, and then B, to make some changes, how did you reset it from a funding perspective? And how do you even approach that? Because I think Good Eggs is a unique story in that that's a key moment that I think is not to be kind of understated because that's often very hard to do is reset a company reset the investor base reset its board and i think that's it's a key key turning point for good exit. that you help lead
2: yeah that was a a tough moment but a, a clear moment too like emo-
0: emotionally difficult but logically
2: simple the company was valued highly it had raised i think 52 million dollars prior to me joining and when i joined i was I was told that we had a few years of cash um, to, to, to do the job. And it, you know, any, any turnaround, there's a lot of cultural change. To, to your question, there's also you need time and you need capital to do it properly. right? You can't rush that, and you can't do it without capital. So I recall in the first month, and the whole company thought that we had cash. Uh, I thought we had cash, and I found out that we didn't have cash. And that day I found that out was not, not, not a good day.
0: <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: not, a, not a good date for him mildly and i remember going home i know when you, when you, uh, my wife nicole i remember
2: going home and, and nicole i think i think she shared something like hey just bentley because you when you give your word you mean it doesn't mean the world operates in that way which i told her was incredibly helpful <laughs> <laughs> And then I had a stiff cocktail. <laughs> and, and then honestly, I just, I thought about it for the night and uh, I am an optimist, better, better or worse. And I woke up the next day and I was like, you know what, this is, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought. But I also care deeply about this, this category and what this company is doing. I've gotten to really care about the people here. And so I'm going to go back and I'm gonna, I'm not going to walk away, which would have been the easy thing to do at that time. Within a few hours of that, I, I called the board at the time um, and said, I thought about this a lot. Um, this is not what I expected, but I'm still here. And, and this is what I think is required to keep the business that, that we have built or you guys have built uh, alive. And I said, step one is I think we need to restructure it. It's overvalued. Step two is I need to restructure that aggressively enough so that I can attract a new capital. And it really is a fresh start. And I know it's not what anybody out here wants to hear, but I'm open to hearing any and all alternatives yeah. <laughs> that still get us a chance of surviving and getting additional capital to survive. And there weren't a lot of additional options on the table. And so to their credit, they were they were pretty they were pretty logical about it. Uh, and then my only other condition was that anybody who told me there was cash in the business when it wasn't could no longer be on the board. Fair. And that and that's it. So it wasn't actually very personal. It wasn't super dramatic, but it was clear.
1: I, I, I'm, I'm actually curious. At, at that point in time in your career, had you actually had a lot of exposure and worked directly with boards? Yeah. I mean, at Plum from the early
2: days. I was in the E-team. So I don't know, seven years of I Got think it. early days, we had monthly board
1: meetings. Because that's, that's just a tough conversation.
0: <laughs> it is a tough conversation. And, and I'm sure with the way the capital had been raised, it's actually like maybe even, you know, to Robin's point, you know, that the board dynamics may have been even more complicated than a plum that had m- more of a concentrated investor base where I would assume good eggs at that time, like many club VC related deals had maybe a, a number of different players involved so i i think you, you you you've made it sound so simple but i would assume there were a lot of different different constituencies involved that you know that you had to navigate
2: oh yeah that was yeah i'm, I'm making it sound simple it was not 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 simple in the following weeks or the that conversation but that's that's the outcome yeah you're right there mm-hmm. was there's the board and then there's smaller investors and angel investors who were in the deal and you know in in many ways some had blocking rights to that so there was There was a lot of hard conversations, same with bank, right? We had a a bank line and I called them within 24 hours of finding this all out and told them what the scenario was. We actually had, I think we had a $7 million debt line at the time and we hadn't pulled any of it. And I think it was set to expire in two weeks. And so I called the bank and I said, the last thing you want me to do is pull the 7 million in debt, it's the last thing I wanna do as I'm trying to restructure the business. And by calling you right now, that puts a lot of things at risk, but you deserve to know the truth. Um, and to their credit, that was SVB. They were they were incredible partners in that moment and they essentially reduced the line and extended our availability so that we had a chance. And I used that tiny bit of debt to buy enough time so you can get enough progress to then get new capital.
0: So you, you, you have alignment from the, the previous board. You, you ask some parties who'd leave to, to change their role. Walk us through the capital raising process of a company that was a bit of a restart. Yeah,
2: I think, I mean, the, the narrative in the Valley, which like objectively is true, is that you don't invest in things that are retrenching, right? There's very few examples of companies who have made substantial value post that moment. And so you had to make it a good enough deal. And then you had to have people who were independent thinkers who could look at that deal with fresh eyes, which is not actually a lot. And so I quickly learned like I could only talk to MDs of firms who had enough political pull to look, and enough ability to be an independent thinker to look at that deal freshly and realize there were a lot of assets from the past and there was a new team in place. And yeah, knocking on, on a lot of doors. So Dan, Danny Reimer at INDEX was, he was one of the primary ones from the prior deal who actually stuck, stuck with us. Um, I actually will always respect and he will always have my loyalty for that. So he offered to put in 5 million if I could raise 10, which I thought
0: was fair, you know, contingent on others, but at least we had an anchor in the lead. 10 additional or another five to make
2: another, another five. Yep. Um, and then I went out and I, I knocked on a ton of doors and I finally rounded that up. I think at the end, I think we had a timetable on that 10 million. You're taking me back now too. This might be too in the weeds, but I think we were, I think we were a little under the 10 and I think I had to write a personal check to cover the difference, um, which wasn't huge, but it was one of those things where like, well, I'm in it now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And then, so so you, you got the 10 partially through, you know, you Nicole's own personal, uh, personal capital. Then you had the capital to, to start re you nego- renegotiate your deal, with SVB, the fact of how you, you were listening to the various stakeholders and figuring out who who shared your vision. From there, wh- when did you know that the turn was happening?
2: I think there's one other connecting thread of this narrative, which will answer that question. When I was raising capital, I, I had one other ask, and that ask was for six to nine months, There's there's so much foundational work to be done that I actually don't want to have a single discussion about growth. And it's not because I don't want growth, I do but it's just, we have real work to do. Um, and so everybody actually put that capital in, accepted that that core concept. And I think that's probably one of the primary reasons we actually are an anomaly. And we did emerge from that because they were willing for six, nine months to work on foundation. So I think a turning moment for us after that listening in that first 30 days, we identified what we needed to do. And it was really only three things, but it, two of them were customer facing. Every customer I talked to loved good eggs, but saw us as an occasional specialty shop. And we were at the time, I think two or three day delivery. Um, the world hadn't fully shifted to same day delivery at that point. And uh, that was that was it. So we knew that we had to add SKU count so we could be a complete grocer in a primary shop. And we knew that we had to launch same day delivery And then internally, I knew that we had to fix unit economics, and that was it.
0: Was that the third thing, was unit economics? Yeah,
2: that was the third thing. But the first two would also help us achieve the third thing. Uh, And so thats I think that's when we started to see that turn, was probably four months in when we had grown from, I don't know, 1,000 SKUs to 3,000 SKUs when we were launching same-day delivery. And when growth was organic and happening quickly, that's when you could just feel it. Um, and I think about that actually a lot that moment because I think companies don't get a lot of credit when they're doing that like trench laying foundation building layer. I think they often get credit for the surge of growth that comes after that. Uh, I think about that at Plum. I think about that. I think about that at Good Eggs. But really the growth is on the back of that period that was building a foundation. And so in the following 18 months, yeah, we, we grew by 700 percent i think in in 16 months and we filled up the warehouse we had we grew quicker than we expected and that was that's a good problem to have um but it really was off the back of that foundation
0: and at four months in did you also fix problem number three because i think you talked about one and two did did the unit economics work at that point yeah, they did. I, it,
2: it, I, One of the investors at Plum was obvious. So James Joaquin there was on, I think, our Series B at Plum um, through, a, through a different firm at the time. And I, I love that obvious crew. And so I kept on going back and asking them if they wanted to invest in this deal. And James, to his credit, he's like, I know you, Bentley. I know you too well. I'm going to pass you off to the skeptic in the firm. And Vishal, uh, Vishal Vasith was, was, was skeptical about online grocery. And so we had some amazing sessions in a whiteboard in their building. And He's like, Oh, I want to invest in this, but your unit economics are just, just
0: bad. And, 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 and they were, and they were. And, 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 so he, he, he kept on, uh, he kept on holding the line there, which I think is completely
2: appropriate. And I think that bank line bought us enough time to then go fix unit economics. So I think I, I called him back every like two or four weeks <laughs> saying, all right, it's from negative 13 to negative four. He's like, it's not good enough. Uh, I'm like, all right, now it's two. He's like, not good enough. I'm like, it's five. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we just came back and I don't know if it was sheer persistence or actual results, but at the end, they, they decided to join in that round too. Um, but it, it took probably, it took six or nine months. So what were the milestones that you hit to, ra- to raise your next round of capital? Who came in and how did you convey the term?
2: I think it was probably 24 months after that turnaround. Uh, yeah, Bill Gurley from Benchmark, who is is a legend in many ways, led that round. And I think I mean, Bill's just like Bill. Bill is a brilliant human being, and he is he is the definition of an independent thinker. And he has this unique ability to see a future that doesn't exist yet, and also look on the other side and see what the biggest risk is that will kill you if you don't focus on it enough. And like that ability to be optimistic and pessimistic at the same time is just so uncommon. And so I remember I went in and I gave that pitch to Bill two years later. And I don't know if it was 24 or 48 hours later. I don't, I didn't know if it was a good pitch or not. I was way later on, he's told me, uh, I was, I'm very transparent about the good and bad parts of the business in that pitch, probably in a way that I wouldn't recommend to other entrepreneurs. (laughs) Uh, but Bill's like, you didn't leave anything in the table. So you could tell that you were transparent, um, about the opportunity and the risks. And you could tell that you knew the business. And he, I think 48 hours later, he'd read through a ton of research reports in the category. I think he'd called a couple Fortune 500 CEOs in grocery. And he essentially had a thesis on where the future of grocery would go, uh, which was very aligned with the thesis that we had. And we just, we just spent the next session together digging deep on that particular, his thesis and his beliefs. And what would work and what wouldn't, and who would win over time, and so it was. It was actually a pretty, was a pretty mutual understanding that this could be really big and enduring over time, and therefore the, the narrative of the turnaround was less relevant than what was possible, and and he could really look at it with like just just logic.
0: But I think you created the window for someone to look forward. You know, I think that's a real credit to you, Bentley you over 24 months you'd created an ability to have a vision again to no longer have to look backwards and explain what had happened and now look forward again in terms of what what you were going to build at good eggs so i think that's really a credit to you and your team and the team you've built um in order to have someone like bill you know a benchmark be able to whiteboard the future versus relive the past
2: yeah, I appreciate I appreciate you saying that. I think that's true. And actually, yeah, you're right. I'm thinking back on that. He did identify that it is actually harder to do that and execute what we did in a 2-year period than it is to take something that is a rocket ship and grow it. And so I think he he respected the operational chops the team had to pull that off.
0: So let's fast forward now to last March. COVID COVID hits, you know, in the US, lockdowns start occurring. Walk us through good eggs.
2: Oh, yeah. This is a a high and a low point. Last year was for everybody. It was an interesting one. It's on a personal side. A week and a half before COVID became kind of widely known and stay in place. started to go into effect. Somebody who I loved dearly almost died. um, And I had to fly out for some emergency surgery. And so that was- COVID related or un-COVID? No, un-COVID related. Yep. So it's just, it's the backdrop of- COVID started before COVID for me from like a, a, a life perspective. Yep. And, and so I came back from that that surgery. And we we for twelve months, we had been building this facility in Oakland, 120,000 square foot facility, to increase capacities in the Bay Area. And we had we had we had invested in a bunch of new warehouse management systems. So how we pick orders, how we receive product, how we deliver those orders. And the purpose of that system was to improve reliability of the service and profitability. And so we were about to open this new warehouse and the new systems and we just started transitioning after this this surgery i mentioned and we just moved all of our business to this oakland location i think six or seven days before covid stay in place went into effect so amazing timing from a business perspective, but also, like the time you want to be working out kinks in a new, a new system <laughs> and a new building is, is, is not when you have unlimited free demand.
0: Uh, so that was good
2: for business, bad for my own my own sleep habits. And honestly, for the next six eight months, it was just nonstop like long days, long nights, seven days a week to meet the moment that was a once in a lifetime moment. And it's kind of the same thing as when I joined Good Eggs early days, you could, you could really feel how essential this service was in, in that moment for our team, for our customers, for our producers who still had food in the ground and restaurants were closing up.
0: You could just feel that. So unlimited free demand hits. What are kind of three things that come to mind that you had to do to think about how you filter all of that demand and, and meet the moment? And all of the unintended consequences of those decisions.
2: Yeah, it was was a time of high velocity decisions with, you know, Mm -hmm. limited and ambiguous information. What were the biggest questions? I mean, I think the biggest question I had actually was team first. So where have we built a team who can thrive in a volatile, uncertain world? And where have we not? Because across the business, I would say five of the six areas had teams who are actually better under pressure, and one of them did not. And so I had to make changes on team first. Um, I started. I took over operations at that stage. That was probably the first thing. I think second thing was, how do we get supply, and how do we ensure we have resilience of supply in this moment? And Jamie, who's amazing, uh, she took care of that with her team.
1: And, and she's then, your head,
2: she's your head merchant. Yeah, yeah. head of a sort of buy, buying yep. and merchandising. Yep. And she was Whole Foods for a long time. And then, and then the third, and these were all like, when I say third, this is in quick succession within like a four-hour period. The third is like, how do we keep our team safe? And how do we do this in a, in a fulfillment center with hundreds and hundreds of people in a world where we don't actually know the risks and, and, and what to do? And so across all of those dimensions, we quickly, we quickly shifted almost everything we do and just started taking one day at a time, and one step at a time.
0: Walk us through what Good Eggs looks today. I mean, you, I think you raised another uh, another round very successfully in COVID. Walk us through investor receptivity this go-around versus when you first started and what the business <laughs> looks like today. Oh, yeah. I, I have to laugh. I, I'm i laughing and you, because... And you, de- and you deserve the opportunity to laugh at the difference.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, yeah I, I, always, I was always wondering whether I was crazy or not. So, I, so the word is still out. But, but five years ago, I used to just tell the, the basic slide that food is a huge category, it's a trillion dollars, it's 6% of GDP, and it is going towards good food, like high integrity, peak quality food, which everything in my background from Plum and Cliff and everything gave me good data points there. And then two, it's, it's moving online, and the US is way behind every other country. Uh, and maybe, maybe five years ago, 10 or 15% of people would nod their head vigorously, uh, and everybody else is skeptical that that would be a small niche, uh, the online, the online niche, and the good niche, and the overlap of that was even smaller. I, I fast-forward three years, and and you know Amazon buys Whole Food, and maybe, maybe maybe the ratio of people who agree with that statement is like fifty percent now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then COVID hits, and and you know so suddenly this is the best sector on the planet to be in. Um, and I, 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 I will appreciate that. We're lucky. We got the lucky
2: break. It's not like we're any better business than our, than our, than a restaurant or any more deserving. We just happen to get a lucky break. And, and now that slide, usually people quickly brush past it (laughs) (laughs) and say, and say, move on to the rest. And, And that's a, that's an investor sentiment, right? But the customer sentiment is equally that the magnitude and speed of change is equally large. I think we used to joke that nobody wakes up in the morning and, and asks. You know what I need today? I need a better grocery store. That that hasn't been working out well for me for the last one. I mean, no, no one wakes up with that, right? So that, so that was the thing that kept us up at night. And and then overnight, through something completely outside of our control, everybody wakes up and asks that question every day. Really, I've never seen something like it. I don't think we ever will again. Um, but being an online grocery while watching that consumer behavior shift that was so deeply ingrained before
0: is... a uh, fascinating thing to watch. Right after the break, we'll be back with our featured guest, CEO of Good Eggs, Bentley Hall.
1: Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can find us in any podcast app of your choice and bookmark unfinishedbiz.com for new and past episodes. Follow us on our Unfinished Biz LinkedIn page for news and updates. If you love the show, we love iTunes reviews. Only five stars though, Robin. That's true. But now let's get back to our episode with Good Egg CEO Bentley Hall. Well, this has obviously been an incredible roller coaster ride, probably punctuated by a number of stiff drinks. If there, if you had to pick a moment uh, where you really put everything on the line, you know, what what would you point to there?
2: I think that moment when when we found out we had less cash than we need, and we had to restructure the business, call the bank, tell the team. <laughs> Uh, that's definitely a bet the company moment and the true definition of, of of the question.
1: Absolutely.
0: Maybe, maybe the high points today, but you know what? What are your what's your high or low point in the journey so far?
2: Oh, I think I think you can't get the highs without the lows. I don't know if it's high. or Yeah, or
0: low. well, I, I met Anne. So what, what's uh, what, what's the high and then what's the low?
2: I th- I think there was a period. Call it in May after working nonstop seven days a week when, when it was, it was, it was rough, right? Every day was a, was a fight to meet demand, to make sure we had supply, to keep our team safe, to, to deliver what we wanted to with customers. It was just like the whole team was, was an Ironman sprint, right? Every, every day. And so I think about how hard that was and how much work that took. And the feeling I remember, which is kind of, maybe it's the peak success. I remember the first week or two when COVID was happening, there was a feeling of fear in our fulfillment center because everybody doesn't know. You don't know what's happening right now if you're safe. And by the time we got to a few weeks later, you could tell that everybody here, and I was in here every day at the time, everybody here knew that they Good Eggs cared about people. Everybody knew that we had done everything humanly possible to keep our team safe. And everybody felt like there was a sense of uh, joy that people had jobs in a company that cared about them. And it's not intangible, it's not an investor thing, but I won't I won't forget that moment and that cultural shift and the energy that was different at a time when actually a lot of, I think, retailers and grocers and online companies were not taking the same measures we were, yep. we were in people. That's a pretty high moment for me.
0: What about the lowest point other than finding out that you don't have any cash, which I admit that's the, the that's, gonna, that's that's pretty darn low. So if you had to, yeah, that's just, if that's you had to pick thing. one other moment that was not when you found out you had no cash, um, what would it be?
2: Oh, a lower one than that I was lower doesn't need to be I, lower,
0: I, but, you know, a, a very low one, a very low one. I I I think
2: it was it's all wrapped up in the same this COVID period. Yeah. I think I think knowing that the world had changed and having to hold our capacity steady for two or three weeks while we were working out the kinks in this new facility and new system while we were working night and
1: day, that was a that was a low. Well at this point in time, what's keeping you up at night? Mm, what's keeping me up at night? It's changed so much over the years.
2: I think my first—I'll answer the question—but I think it started off with unit economics when I joined. Cash. <laughs> I think it then began. I was kept up at night on how do we hire enough good people to keep up with growth. Then I think it was about how do we build this next foundation for scale. And today, today I—I I think most about how do we how do we continue to scale and accelerate our growth curve while maintaining our purpose, and. How do we evolve what we are doing today as we expand into additional regions to make it more likely that we can achieve greater scale and greater good?
0: And still achieve the strong unit economics that you had built to not relive the last time you the company went to multiple markets, I assume, too. Exactly. Well, Robin, I mean, this is a truly unique story. I mean, we've we've come across so many different businesses that are on the path to being unicorns, billion dollar valuations, on some type of exponential growth curve, which in some regards good eggs was once on that path and you know but this is a truly unique story where it's really the rising of the phoenix where you had once a high flyer, a retrenchment and then you know and then comes here comes Bentley Hall
1: I mean, retrenching one of these is incredibly hard work, and it requires a ton of clarity of vision. In In his playbook, you know, you have to reset value, make sure that people have the right alignment. You've got to get the right people around the table and really rethink your team. And then you have to set the right goals. And, you know, I think he was very clear about what he needed to do. And he was also very unapologetic about how hard it truly was.
0: You know, interestingly enough, He was really preparing this company for COVID without knowing that COVID was coming, you know, building that foundation so that the team and company was ready to really meet the moment um, when consumers needed good eggs more than ever. And the team was ready to, to really meet that moment. And seven days a week of hard work. It's interesting that that was a contrast to what he truly believes builds the holistic person, which is. You sustainably can drive business success if you have a holistic life. And we learn a little bit more about that coming up here on the show.
2: I find joy in this journey that I have of good eggs. Um, and I do, I do spend a lot of time like outside. I mean, we live in Marin, right? I, I spend a lot of time outside when I'm not working, actually with my fam- kids or with my friends, whether it's skiing or mountain biking or paddle boarding. Are going on like longer backpacking trips one, once a year. So for me, like I'm happiest if I'm in raw nature <laughs> with people I love. And if I can punctuate that with an amazing meal at the end of the day, that's, that's pretty good. And so I do spend a lot of time there when I'm not working. And like I said, I love, I love learning. So I, I, can, I, can, I, read, I read a lot and I exercise a lot outside and I eat a lot and I work a lot. And to me, it's like the best days are the ones where... <laughs> At the end of the day, you want to you want to work for another eight hours, but you also leave work because you want to go lead a full life outside of work. That's that's the definition of a a good day to me.
0: And now for the most critical part of the podcast, our uh, our signature game, Rapid Fire. These are hard hitting questions, Bentley. Um, Ready. You ready? I'm ready. All right. What were you the last time you wore a costume for Halloween? Oh, I
2: think I was, I think it was Batman last year. My kids chose that for me, so. Most used
1: app on your phone? Definitely
2: good eggs.
0: Sports team you're most loyal to? I
2: I grew up in Boston, so Red Sox take the cake there. Who inspires you? My parents actually inspire me a lot. Our board inspires me, our team inspires me.
1: A lot of people inspire me. Weirdest job you've ever had?
2: I worked at a restaurant on the East Coast that uh, I'm not sure was a legitimate restaurant after I worked there for a week or uh, <laughs> two. There was, there was some bags of cash and other things passed along, and I chose a different path at that point. <laughs> what or who makes you laugh? <laughs> Everything makes me laugh. I think, uh, I think
0: life
1: makes me laugh. <laughs> a- a- any hidden talents?
0: S- uh, skiing. I'm, I- I've been skiing since I was three, so skiing is my sport. Last concert you went to?
2: I went to outside lands right before COVID. Favorite meal of the day?
0: Breakfast, for sure. What did you get detention for in school, if ever?
2: I, I think I,
0: I probably pushed some teachers a little too far. I, re- I recall a
2: Latin teacher who was not a fan.
1: <laughs> Preferred method of exercise?
2: Outdoor, deep. Outdoor, deep in nature.
1: Hard-hitting Hard, hard, are hard, 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 hard hitting
2: questions.
0: Like. Yes, I mean, that's, <laughs> this is when you really learn about Bentley Hall, ladies and gentlemen. Last question. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Don't, other than don't run out of cash.
2: I think, I think anybody, entrepreneur or not, should think about risk differently. And I think people should bet on themselves more often and try to build something that has not existed before. I think life is too
0: short to not do that. Wise words from Bentley Hall. Well, thanks again for, uh, for joining us on Unfinished Biz.
2: Thanks, Wayne. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Robin.
0: You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Wayne. And I'm Robin. We'll be